Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the NFP Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon. We're attorneys with NFP, and we use this podcast to bring to you the latest and developments that impact employers and employee benefit plans. And today, we're definitely talking about something that's been in the news. It's the OSHA recent guidance on employer COVID-19 vaccine and testing mandates. So we like to touch on those topics that are that are hot. Um, that dropped last week. And we're going to cover, th- we've covered this in the past. And just a reminder that this is just, this really is an, an employment law issue. Uh, we're going to hit it at a very high level, but employers need to work with their outside counselor to address any of their specific concerns or questions that they have related to the mandate. But with that, Chase, tell us about the mandate. Yeah, thanks, Suzanne. So these employer vaccine and testing mandates were originally announced by the administration back in September and kind of left us all on our toes in anticipation and employers everywhere. Hey, we need some more guidance on this. And so we've been waiting for that. Um, and that's what just uh, dropped last week. But the mandate itself is that all employers with 100 or more employees have to ensure their employees are either vaccinated or tested for COVID weekly. And so that was basically all we had before. Um, and lots of questions kind of came out of that. And that's what we've been waiting for. Right. And, and we mentioned this on a prior podcast. And um, part of the challenges are related to the emergency uh, ETS, the emergency temporary standard utilization of that process instead of the standard rulemaking process. But um, we know that there's some legal challenges that have already dropped. And so, Chase, what are, are we likely to see this go into effect or what's going to happen? Yeah, so that's the first question before we go any further, really, in understanding what that ETS or that guidance from OSHA says. Uh, but the rule or the guidance was supposed to go into effect pretty immediately. Like more, We'll talk more on that in a second, but it had basically a November 5th, 2021 effective date. Uh, but one day later, on November 6th, 2021, after a case challenging the mandate was filed, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, that's a federal court, Uh, temporarily blocked this vaccination rule or the ETS, citing to potential grave statutory and constitutional issues with the rule, the Fifth Circuit promised an expedited judicial review of whether to block it permanently. And so the parties involved there are supposed to submit more um, of their uh, documents and information to the court by today. So we'll see this hopefully move quickly. Um, and it's also important to note that challenges have been filed in apparently three other circuit courts. So it's possible that we'll have consolidated cases or that we get three you know, conflicting rulings across different circuits. So we expect that even after the circuits rule, the Supreme Court will eventually be asked to weigh in. So that all leads to a lot of uncertainty. And we're in a really short time frame here, right? Because one of the things we'll talk about is this ETS is really only supposed to be in effect for six months. And we know court rulings and court processes can often take a long time. And so um, that really puts the future of the OSHA vaccine or the uh, mandate in this ETS at risk. And it's just unknown for now exactly what that looks like. We'll just have to wait for the courts to hopefully, again, move 
expeditiously and get us some answers. Of course, we'll be closely monitoring this. Uh, but with that said, and we're always kind of on the cautious end of things from a compliance angle, but uh, with that short compliance implementation window, um, we'll talk a little bit about the dates, but uh, employers should really continue to take steps to, to comply or at least talk to their counsel about what they should be doing to comply. With that in mind, we'll just have to watch and see how the, the legal landscape uh, rolls out and see what happens on that front. And we'll certainly keep everyone informed on that. But let's take a look and drill down into to the mandate itself. So starting right off the bat, tell us how to count the 100 employees. Obviously, this mandate applies to employers with 100 plus employees. Um, that's obviously a, a threshold issue. So walk us through how you actually count, because we've seen in benefits compliance, there's a lot of different ways to count employees. Yeah, there's a different method for every rule, it feels like, and, and kind of no different here. But the guidance basically says the employer size is determined as of the total employee count on November 5th, 2021. So no look back period. It's really a snapshot on November 5th. Once an employer is subject to the requirement um, due to that size, they remain subject for the entire ETS period, which I just mentioned is going to be six months. Um, that's true even if they drop below 100 at some point during the six months. So kind of once you're in, you're in, even if your employee size changes a little bit. On the other hand, if the employer is below 100 on November 5th, but later rises above 100, they'll have to comply uh, when they go over 100. And so it's kind of trying to capture anybody who might be over 100 during the six-month period. You can kind of think of it that way. As far as the employees that are counted, all employees working in the U.S. are counted. That includes temporary, seasonal, part-time, full-time, uh, and remote workers. Um, although we'll see in a sec that the employer actually doesn't have to ensure that remote workers are vaccinated, but that they'll still be included in the count is what we're talking about here. Uh, workers employed by a temporary staffing agency are counted by the agency not the host employer. That was some important clarification there. And you don't count by work location. It's an employer level count. And so the ETS gave this example of a single entity with multiple locations. They would have to include all employees at all, all locations in the count. Um, interestingly, the guidance does not specifically address control groups. And we get this question over and over. How do you handle common ownership or right. different EINs or different companies uh, but they all have common ownership. Um, and so we don't have specific guidance on that. Unfortunately, the ETS didn't go that far. Um, so we're still not quite sure how to answer that question. Uh, but the most cautious approach is to kind of assume that the control group or the common ownership rules apply. That's something, you, if you're in that situation, definitely want to take that to council and have them work through with it. Obviously, that has other impacts with tax law and other employment laws. Uh, but that was an important thing, question that was out there that we didn't seem to get a, a great answer on. Yeah. And just a note on the ETS, we keep saying six months, but the idea behind an ETS is it's just temporary. And so at the time that you initiate the ETS, you also begin your standard rulemaking. And so the, the full-blown rulemaking should supplant the ETS. So it's not that this will only be in place for six months, but they intend it to be in place for, for indefinitely. So it's just that it will be under the ETS rule and then go into your standard rulemaking, but the, it's uh, it's not intended to be only lasting for six months overall. Um, so once an employer figures out that they have met this threshold, what do they do next? Yeah, so the ETS basically says that the employers need to develop a written vaccination policy 
And they have to do that by December 5th of 2021. So basically giving you employers a month. Um, it can really be one of two policies according to the ETS. The first is a strict mandatory COVID-19 vac vaccination policy under which only workers with uh, those legally recognized accommodation exemptions can abstain from the vaccination. Um, and then the second would be a requirement that employees sort of either become vaccinated or submit to that weekly diagnostic testing and required face mask use. And the rules go, or the ETS goes into a little bit more detail on what is meant by face masks, what's meant by testing. We'll talk a little bit about those. Uh, but as far as, um, you know, which, which sort of policy to develop here, that really comes down to the, what makes most sense to the employer um, for their workforce, taking into account, you know, the company's mission, their culture, their employee relations, and uh, the current labor market. So that's really another question uh, when you're developing a vaccination policy, really outside counsel is going to want to weigh in and try and help craft that policy according to the uh, company's goals. Yeah, I think this, so is, this is so interesting that they require a written policy on this because obviously there's a lot of employment uh, implications under federal law that don't require a policy necessarily. But um, what kind of information are they saying they want in that policy? Yeah, so the ETS went into a whole list of things here, uh, but think of it as like a roadmap for how this will all work within the organization or the company. So it need to include things like the requirements for COVID-19 vaccination, applicable exclusions from the written policy. Um, so again, think of things like medical necessities requiring a delay in the vaccination or accommodations for workers with disabilities or, or sincerely held religious beliefs. It needs to include information on determining an employee's vaccination status and how that information is going to be collected. So you think about what employees need to know to show proof that they're vaccinated. Uh, paid time and sick leave for vaccination purposes. Uh, notification of positive COVID-19 tests and removal of positive uh, COVID-19 employee, employees that have received a positive test, right? You have to get them out of the workplace. How's that going to happen? Um, disciplinary action for employees who do not abide by the policy um, and procedures applicable to unvaccinated employees, including that testing and the, and the face covering or the face masks and how those are used. Um, so, and then, and then just, you know, the standard things you would expect in the policy, like the effective date, who it applies to, what are the deadlines for submitting vaccination information, for getting fully vaccinated, um, so thankfully, though, here, the Department of Labor and OSHA, they have some templates available to assist and has a lot of this information in there to sort of guide em employers on developing that policy. Yeah, it does seem like under this whole vaccine mandate that the federal government has been good in terms of their Q&A and the information that they're providing, for example. So yeah. we're talking about written policies now. It's getting more formal, um, but we have certainly been... Um, asked questions about state law, because there are some states, we live in Texas, Texas being one of them, that prohibit employers in the state from implementing a vaccine mandate, uh, some even a mask mandate. So how does that play? Yeah, so um, we talked a little bit about the federal uh, lawsuits. These are kind of state-based lawsuits. Uh, the OSHA, the ETS, addresses this right up front by claiming um, OSHA, OSHA basically says their ETS preempts the state law. And so that's a fancy way of saying that the OSHA rule or the ETS is given preference uh, over the state law. And so the ETS would win out. 
for example, you just mentioned Texas, Montana is another state um, that, that has laws or in Texas's case, an executive order um, from the governor saying there can't be a vaccine mandate on employers. And so in other words, you can't force employees to get vaccinated if you're an employer. But OSHA in their ETS basically says their rule trumps those state laws. And so the OSHA vaccine mandate can apply. Again, there was, there's going to be legal challenges there too, uh, but this is really the DOL claiming they can do this based on their role and charge to create safe workspaces and to protect against what they call grave dangers to that safe, safe workspace. And they feel vaccination or testing regularly are really the best ways to protect against the grave danger of uh, COVID. So we'll see on that. What's clear though, is that the state law can apply to a smaller employer, right? The OSHA ETS, the federal mandate is really for larger employers. So if you had a company with fewer than hundred employees in Montana or Texas, then that state law uh, might still have power to say that the employer can't on their own implement a mandatory vaccination or testing policy. And we have seen that out there, right? Employers just kind of taking their own initiatives on what they're going to require of their employees. Sure. So this state law may come into play there. And there has been noise that Biden wants to expand the uh, mandate to, you know, those employers that have fewer than 100 employees, which really gets to right. the whole issue of also uh, the need for it to be an emergency. You know, why would it be emergency only for those employers with 100 plus employees? That's going to be uh, something they would, a hurdle they'd have to um, overcome in their argument as to why they needed to use that ETS process. But um, getting back to the guidance, um, you know, we think certainly in the time of the pandemic, we have a lot of remote workers. How are remote workers required to be vaccinated? Is it only if they're going to come into the office or the job site or what? Yeah, so we mentioned the remote workers, almost all workers are included in the count itself to get figure out if you're over 100 or not. But neither the vaccine mandate nor the testing applied to employees who do not report to a work site with customers or other coworkers. So it would not apply to a fully remote employee. Uh, the ETS says it also does not apply to employees working exclusively outdoors. And so think about landscape workers, uh, golf co course uh, or outdoor pool maintenance employees, those types of employees that are always outside um, also don't have to, uh, you know, employer doesn't have to worry about them being vaccinated. That was an interesting addition. I'm not sure how many really expected that. I think everybody kind of expected the remote work, uh, but going a little bit further with the outdoor employee work uh, right. might be helpful for some employers. Sure. Okay, so does it expand, the ETS expand on the definition of fully vaccinated? That's, you know, seems to be a question here because what about boosters, for example? Does, does that mean that employees who qualify can get a booster or are required to be, get a booster in order to be considered fully vaccinated? Yeah, that was a big question uh, with the boosters now being more available, but the ETS defines fully vaccinated as an employee's status two weeks after completing primary vaccination. So that depends on which, uh, which, which version of the vaccine you took, uh, but primary vaccination involves receiving two doses of the Moderna or Pfizer or one dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, the definition also requires that there is an appropriate interval between doses. And so you know what, you know, kind of what those look like uh, as far as between the first and second doses. But the big part here was the ETS does not require booster shots in order for employees to be considered fully vaccinated. You know, that was a big concern that they might add this and that creates confusion about when you're supposed to have the booster following your prior vaccination. Uh, but 
The other big thing here, employees have to be fully vaccinated or subject themselves to regular testing by January 4th of 2022. So that's the other big deadline here. Um, that's really when employees have to sort of um, decide if they're going to be vaccinated and get vaccinated by that date. Um, that's really the, the big date out there. So how do employers verify vaccination status? I assume I assume I assume there'll be some creative employees out there that uh, try to uh, make fake vaccination cards. So what what level does the employer have to go through to make sure that, you know, their vaccination status is valid? Um, and uh, what do they have to do in this respect? Yeah, it's a challenge for employers. You're sort of putting them in the role of being a judge in some ways, right? Like how how true is this doc or how authentic is this document? But basically the employers just have to determine the status and maintain records that they uh, took steps to try and verify it. Uh, but the, the ETS says examples of acceptable proof of vaccination include a COVID-19 vaccination record card. Uh, so the standard one that if you've been vaccinated, you have that card. Copies of records of immunization provided by a healthcare provider. Um, so we see that sometimes with children, right? You have your, your immunization record. And um, if neither of those can be provided, the employer actually can rely on a signed attestation from the employee that they are vaccinated. And so we see that in other areas of compliance anyway, where the employers just kind of, they're, they're okay to trust the employee. I think if there is reason to doubt what the employee is, is telling them, then they may have an obligation to dig a little bit deeper and ask questions and maybe ask for a little bit more proof. Um, but you can actually just rely on that attestation if, if all else fails. And then, and then the records uh, from vaccination are considered confidential medical records and the employer has to maintain them accordingly. That means really storing them with other sensitive employee information. It's not necessarily a HIPAA obligation. We've talked about that on past podcasts. Um, because this is not arising in the context of the group health plan. It's uh, an employment record. And so, but still sensitive, still confidential, um, but keep it with your other employee files. And then employers do have to make them available if OSHA asks for them. And so that's another kind of record keeping documentation requirement from the ETS. Right. Um, as you were speaking about that, I was wondering whether some employers will go to the step of requiring some form of blood test that shows that they actually have the antibodies. I did have a, a good friend who has not had the vaccine, but has had COVID and her blood test showed that she had the vaccine antibodies. <laughs> so they may not be uh, accurate test, but, um, but anyway, for employees that are not or can't be vaxxed, what are the ETS details on alternative testing? Yeah, and we're going to talk about the types of tests that are uh, okay here in just a sec, so we'll get back to that antibody test. But the ETS requires employers to provide a reasonable accommodation for those who cannot be vaccinated or who can't wear a face mask um, uh, or a face covering due to a disability. And this gets a little bit into another law called the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA. And we've talked about that on po past podcasts as well. Um, so if there's somebody that has that medical reason or if it conflicts with the employee's religious beliefs, uh, practices, or observances, then the testing comes into play here. Employees who are not fully vaccinated have to be tested weekly um, if the worker is in the workplace at least once a week or within seven days before returning to work if the worker is away from the workplace for a week or longer. Um, interestingly, the big question 
who has to pay for the tests. The ETS actually states that the employer does not have to pay for the testing, um, but then it includes the statement, uh, although other laws, regulations, collective bargaining agreements, or collectively negotiated agreements may require it. And so there's some question about whether, um, definitely if you have a union population, you need to go back and review your union CBA agreement. If there's any other employment agreement or language talking about the provision of safety gear and the payment for for that being on the employer. And then there's the ADA that sometimes requires the employer to pay for it. And we're, but there's at least an argument that that would also apply here and would fall under this kind of clause of other laws or regulations that might require it. And so I, even though the ETS says the employer does not have to pay for it, I think it is a point that deserves a little bit more attention and something for employers to talk to their counsel about. You also have to think about Overall, whether that's something, a message you want to send to employees, right? We're going to force you to do this and to pay for it. So a little bit more about the culture of the company uh, comes into play there. Um, but that's for both the testing and the face coverings. Um, so definitely something more, more to discuss with outside counsel. As far as the tests that are acceptable, it's really any test that is cleared, approved, authorized, um, and that includes an emergency use authorization from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, that's the FDA, um, to, to, to detect current infection with the virus. So the other part about this that was interesting in the ETS is it says it has to be administered. The test has to be administered in accordance with the instructions, and it cannot be both self-administered and self-read. So you can't just have an employee say that they got a test and and administer it to themselves and read it themselves. It can't be self-administered and self-read. Again, trying to get away from somebody trying to self-deal a little bit there. And then the type of tests include tests um, that would be on uh, home or on-site tests, um, proctored over-the-counter tests, point-of-care tests, and tests uh, where specimen collection and processing is either done or observed by the employer. Uh, really, it includes diagnostic tests. Um, so one of those is the an antigen test or the NAAT, which is the nucleic acid amplification test. So getting very technical here, um, but uh, one thing- quite well, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I'm struggling with the uh, medical terms. That's not my forte. Uh, but the antibody tests are, will not meet the ETS standard or definition of a COVID-19 test. So I thought that was an interesting clarification from very, OSHA there. Very interesting, yes. So obviously um, we know that this is gonna, an employee has to take time to go get these tests done or to go get vaccinated or whatever. What about the time off? How was ETS, how did it handle time off? Yeah, so it says employers have to provide workers up to four hours of paid time. Uh, that can include travel time, uh, at the employee's regular rate of pay to each employee uh, for each of their primary vaccination doses received during normal work hours. Um, and then employers have to provide reasonable time and paid sick leave to each employee who recovers from side effects following any primary vaccination dose. And um, the rule says that two days of paid sick leave is considered reasonable. So that's really the, the limit there is two days that employers would probably be required to do that. They can always go further if they feel like they need to. Um, where an employee needs more than four hours to obtain a vaccination dose, uh, that time can be unpaid, but is still considered protective leave. Um, so that's an important clarification. 
if uh, an employee takes leave to recover from the side effects uh, experienced during a vaccination, employers can require the employee to use their accrued sick leave. Um, so that's important. Uh, where an employer offers multiple types of leave, like sick and vacation, the employer can only require employees to use the sick leave when recovering from the side effects. So a couple of clarifications on the leave there. Um, there is some uh, onus on the employee to notify if an employee tests positive for COVID-19 um, or gets a COVID-19 diagnosis, they have to provide prompt notice to the employer. And then the employer has that obligation that we mentioned to remove the employee from the workplace. Uh, that applies regardless of vaccination status um, and then not allow them to, re to return to work until they can meet certain criteria, but that would include a negative COVID test and or a recommendation from a licensed healthcare provider. So some interesting clarifications there on time off and processes when somebody tests positive. Yeah, I'm sure there's there's gonna be a number of questions that come out of that. Um, yeah. What about, obviously there's always a notice requirement. It seems like with everything we do under, um, you know, related to the, the federal government and employee matters. Uh, so what, uh, what employee notice requirements fell under the ETS? Oh uh, yeah, so there's some notifications here. Um, basically letting each employee uh, under, uh, make sure they understand about the employer vaccine testing requirements and any policies and procedures that employers are establishing. Um, and it has to be in a language and in a literacy level that the employee understands. So that can be a big challenge uh, depending on the workforce makeup. Um, so all of that could potentially include the employer's vaccination policy, that process empl employees have to go through in submitting proof of vaccination, the time and how the pay and leave work uh, for vaccination and side effects, if there's any you know, time away from work, uh, the procedures they have to follow for providing notice of a positive test, who do they notify and, and how soon do they have to do that? Um, and then the procedures to be used for requesting records. Um, there's also for unvaccinated employees specifically, the employer has to provide information on their policies for testing and, and face masks. Um, and then there's also this interesting notice that there's actually a model notice, but it's meant to provide details on the efficacy, safety, and benefits of vaccination. Hmm. And so I guess just trying to raise awareness about what a vaccination is and, and how it might benefit the employee. And, um, and then also a little bit of a threat here, but information on the potential criminal penalties associated with an employee knowingly supplying false statements or documentation about their vaccination status. And so again, there's a fact sheet that's available in English and Spanish to help with that part of the notice requirement. It's kind of a print and send type of notice, but that's supposed to go to employees. And then lastly, employers have to inform employees that the employer can't discharge or otherwise discriminate against employees for exercising their rights under the OSHA ETS. How to distribute the notices the ETS, this is always a big question, how do we get this out there? The ETS says that the notice can be distributed in a manner consistent with other employee communications. And then it gives a couple of examples that can always be uh, paper copies by mail. It can be by email if employees have access to work email or through other employee meetings or communications. I thought it was interesting they included meetings Right. <laughs> uh, when we're talking notices, it's a notice that needs to be handed over to the person, right? But this kind of says, well, if you discuss it in a meeting, that might be enough. 
So you'd have um, to have obviously a, a list of who was in attendance at the meeting. Yes, very, very good point. You wanna make sure you have that proof that this was discussed and that that person was in attendance. Those notices um, and that information is supposed to go out by December 5th. So again, we kind of see this December 5th deadline for the policies to be developed, the written policies to get employees the information. And then we have the January 5th deadline where employees actually need to be vaccinated. Um, so yeah, those are some additional notice requirements that employers are gonna have to deal with. And then the point of contention with this um, penalties, tell me about the penalties associated with the lack of compliance. Yeah, so always have to get down to the dollars and cents, right? So OSHA, uh, serious OSHA violations can result in a maximum fine of 13653 Can't just be a nice round number. We got to have uh, an interesting dollar amount there, but that's per serious violation with a $136,532 cap for willful or repeat violations. Then you're asking what, what the heck is a serious violation? That is one that could result in substantial harm or death. And so um, I don't know if it doesn't give specific examples, but you think if the whole point of having a vaccination mandate is to keep people from getting sick and the sickness could potentially lead to hospitalization or death, you would think most violations here would be considered serious. Uh, and then a willful violation is just one that we deal with regularly in, in the legal world. It's one that's knowingly, uh, somebody knowingly fails or acts with complete indifference. Well, that can, um, so, that can definitely add up very quickly. Yeah, so that's again, per, per violation. So almost think of it as a per employee type of uh, penalty. And then if an employer upon inspection fails to produce records showing compliance, OSHA uh, has up to six months to issue a citation uh, with a corresponding penalty there. So another penalty kind of associated with record keeping. So we went through a lot of dates. I want to just circle back to uh, what you stated in the beginning was the Fifth Circuit stay on this mandate. Can you uh, just speak to that as to where we are today? Does that stay apply to only the Fifth Circuit? Um, does it apply beyond that? And and what do employers do overall? Is it some, are they, should they um, go ahead and prepare for those dates or wait to see what what resolves in the courts? Yeah, it's a hard one. Again, this is because it's an employment law issue, because the legal challenges are out there. We probably would say go talk to outside counsel if you're thinking about not trying to prepare or, or thinking that this will be uh, permanently blocked. Right now, again, that Court of Appeals is just a temporary block. And normally, when you have a block like that in a circuit, it would only apply to the states in that circuit. Um, but there is some, uh, like I said, there's other circuits where this challenge is out there as well. And we may get a different answer in that circuit. And um, so it would be a different answer for employers located in states in that circuit. So it just creates a lot of uncertainty. And hopefully those will resolve quickly. Maybe the Supreme Court steps in more quickly than they normally would. Uh, but again, in the meantime, uh, the more cautious approach is to kind of assume this is going to be something that larger employers are going to have to deal with and at least take the initial steps to explore your vaccination policy, think about the policies and procedures of how you want employees to submit their proof of vaccination, and at least get the ball moving so that, you know, if we get closer to that December 5th or that January 4th date where implementation needs to be done, um, you're at least in a better position if all the challenges go away on it. 
Very good. Well, Chase, thanks for walking through this challenging subject, and I'm sure that uh, we'll get some more clarification as this um, unfolds. But in the meantime, we appreciate you walking through it. And as we'd like to say on this podcast, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining. <laughs>